You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. At some level, it feels rather frivolous to talk about the arts right now. Many thousands of people are struggling to pay rent, to buy food, to keep their loved ones safe, or dealing with the emotional toll of being potentially exposed on a daily basis to a virus we are still trying to understand. If you are able to stay home right now and listen to our weekly foray into the world of the arts, thank you for listening and connecting to the arts. And thank you for keeping everyone safe by staying at home. And to those people who are still out in the world, working to keep us fed, providing us with clean water and reliable power and the internet, picking up our trash and providing us with health services, you deserve a level of thanks that we will struggle to adequately repay. But the arts are critical to our emotional health, whether it's the escapism of a movie or a book, the shared experience of a piece of theatre or an artwork or piece of music that moves something in our soul. Our sense of connection to those around us diminishes without the humanity of the arts. So maybe more than ever, it is important to stay connected to the arts and to each other through these shared experiences. Obviously, there are no arts happenings we can physically attend right now, but many of the people who run our arts events and venues are working to create online arts experiences that will keep us connected. So for the next few weeks or months, however long it takes, we're changing the format of Speaking of the Arts and chatting to our arts pals each week about online things that are coming up and about their insights into certain books, films, plays, music and artworks that we can enjoy together whilst we are physically separated. And getting this week's show underway is Barbie Banks, Ragtag's cinema director, to talk about what's happening in the world of ragtag film this week. Hey, Barbie. Hi. (laughs) Your two theatres are dark, but I am excited to find out how you are moving the movie going experience forward and bringing it into our living rooms, kind of as separate from how we usually watch movies, just sitting on the sofa. Um, what What have you been working on? What ideas are you having? Yeah, so um, it's been very strange. It's kind of affected a bunch of um, all levels of movie making. So they've stopped production on some films. They've changed release dates on films. And um, there's a really good podcast about the Spanish flu and what it did to the movie industry. And so we've been listening to that and trying to take some hints from it. But with technology, we have a huge advantage. So we are virtually opening three films on Friday. So typically our our films open Friday and then run at least until the following Thursday. And that's what these films are going to do. And if people are watching them, we will continue them and continue to add more as the weeks go on. And this will kind of also give people an insight into how long a film's life is. So one of these films premiered at last year, South by Southwest, and it's just now being released. So with the canceling of South by Southwest, we'll be seeing the effects of that for at least a whole nother year. So the first one to talk about is one that premiered at South by, which is called St. Francis. And it's about a young woman who has an abortion and she's 30 something and sees her friends, their life 
continuing on and hers kind of being stuck in her 20s even though she's in her 30s and then the relationship she builds with a young person who she's a caretaker for and so I'm really excited about it to me it has a, a feeling of Citizen Jane which is the you know women's film festival we staff here at Citizen Jane we would often get not low budget in a bad way but lower budget films <laughs> um, that were really great and didn't necessarily get a lot of play in the theaters and so that's what this one is and I'm really excited about it. What all these distributors are doing is each theater will have a virtual screening room. So when you go, and all this will be on our website, but you'll go to Oscilloscope who owns this film. You'll go to their webpage and you'll select our theater and then you'll purchase the film from there. And so the price is a little higher than our normal ticket price. It's $10.50, but that's just to keep the prices so that a, a New Yorker can't be getting the Missouri price. So you get um, a part of that money as ragtag. Yeah. So then okay. we get 50% of it, which oh, nice. is huge to be able to be making money with our theaters dark. So check St. Francis out. I, I think it's going to be a a film I could picture a bunch of girlfriends watching it together and really enjoying it so <laughs> watching it together but separately <laughs> right exactly exactly on our zoom or and right. it's not necessarily Netflix party but it's the same sort of concept <laughs> of hitting play at the same time and then we're opening a Polish film called Corpus Christi and it played I think it started at the Tribeca Film Festival last year and it is about a ex-convict who takes up being a, a pastor, a priest. Um, I don't think it's in the Catholic church. And then his past kind of catches up with him. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be, it's kind of funny in some ways, very dark humor, but um, I think people will like it. And to me, it's a film that we would have played at Ragtag for a few days and then get momentum and people would start seeing it and talking about it. And is, is that one the same deal as with Oscilloscope? We go online to an, another company and we, we check the Ragtag yeah. box and you get part of the money? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this one is by Film Movement and they, again, a virtual screening room and it's $12 and we get 50% of that. Okay. Which is great. And then the final film, which is maybe the one I'm most excited yeah, about because I like thrillers, <laughs> um, is called Baccarat. And it is a Brazilian film that everybody keeps saying it's like genre bending, that when you're watching it at first, you're like, what is this film? And then it goes into a big thriller. And it's about a small village in Brazil that loses its matriarch. And then it all of a sudden disappears from all the maps and from history. And then a thriller ensues from there. So it's it's supposed to be really great. It won some awards at Cannes um, last year. It's it's one that I'm not sure we would have brought to Ragtag, but now it's we get this chance uh, with uh, Kino Lorbre, which is the distributor for this film, to get to see it. So we're really excited. And it, again, it has a virtual screening room. It's twelve dollars, and you know that's twelve dollars to screen it at your house with you know, your family. And <laughs> so even though it's a little higher price than normal, more people can watch it. And then again, we get 50% of that. It has UFOs. It has yeah, mercenaries. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a, a wild ride. So, and it got, it's gotten really good reviews and it has, you know, I think again, it has subtitles, so don't let that freak you out, but I think it's going to be. I love subtitles. 
I know I watch everything with subtitles <laughs> on, so I, it doesn't bug me at all that we keep using that. The director of Parasite said, if you can just get past that two inches, <laughs> it'll open your world up. So those are the three that we're opening um, and you can watch them all week. And, you know, ragtag fans that have moved away because their jobs have taken them, they can tune in from anywhere in the world. So wow. and help support their local art house theater whenever we we can't watch movies the normal way. So. When did they open? They open this Thursday. Uh, this Friday. Oh, this Friday. So the day of the show. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. In the oh, evening. Is it, yeah. or is it like what time of day can you go on and see them? You know, I think technically you could do it at midnight on Friday morning. But, okay. you know, may, I, I hope people do it like they're going to the movies. Like they go and get takeout from their favorite restaurant, <laughs> come home, click on the buttons and then watch it. And not get too comfortable watching from your couch because there is something about the collective experience experience right. of watching a movie together so which is kind of what we're trying to emulate on Saturday which I'm really excited about this so in the past um, we have two um, an ex uh, ragtagger Kyle Cook who owns hit records he and uh, one of our projectionists Tony Layson have always done these midnight screenings where they comment over the film and it's sort of like mystery science theater but a local version of it so we are doing one of those. So on Saturday, we're going to watch the Nicolas Cage movie, Ghost Rider. Um, and we're calling it Caged In with Ragtag. <laughs> so you'll watch the movie from your house on Netflix or if you have your own copy of it, and uh, which I'm sure everyone does. And you will watch that movie in your own home. And then there'll be commentary going on during it by Tony and Kyle. And then a special guest who... Um, one of our projectionists who moved away and is working at Quentin Tarantino's theater in California, Ashley Nagel, will be coming back to do commentary. So she's a, a, rag, a ragtag regular favorite. <laughs> and because of technology, we get to bring her back. So How do we see that? Is that, is that a Zoom thing on via yeah, the so ragtag there's website? There's this program called Twitch, and it is used mostly by gamers that they will project their game that they're playing and a video of themselves playing that game. And we're going to use that technology. So you can find this all on our website too, but you'll go to Twitch and that's where you'll get to see our intro of the film, which is something all of us miss being able to do. <laughs> and then we'll watch the film together with commentary and then our commenters will um, be zooming in and be commenting over the movie. So it's going to be interesting. <laughs> that's going to be fantastic. What time on Saturday? So the pre-show starts at 6.30 and then the film will have a countdown of everyone to push play in their homes um, starting at 7. So I love it. I love it. Yeah. Perfect. And then we are also next week we'll release some art house films that we think parents can use for homeschooling. So they'll be able to watch them on Canopy, which is the streaming service through the library. And we'll have guides that go along with them for you to talk to your kids about uh, media literacy and art house films. So. Perfect. Well, let's catch up again next week and, yeah, uh, and find definitely. out what's coming up for the next little period of time at Ragtag. Barbie Banks, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. And now we are off to the world of books, definitely my favourite place in which to vanish. And hello to Skylark bookshop owner and author, the eloquent Alex George. Hello, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm great. So I'm very thankful that my mother and my teachers instilled in me a love of reading as there is such a blissful escapism 
in the world of books between the pages. I have lost many, many hours of my life, as I know you have, between the pages of a book. What are your favorite other worlds that you disappear into? One of, one of my favorites, and a story that I, I remember from a long time ago was when I was in England, in fact, uh, and I was on a bus going from London to Oxford and it was pouring with rain. It was a really dismal afternoon. And I, I, I had just broken up with my then girlfriend and I was going back to college. Uh, and then the bus actually broke down on the side of the motorway on the M40. And um, I didn't care. I didn't <laughs> care at all because I was actually on a Greek island. Oh, you were um, with the Magus. I was with the Magus. That's right. <laughs> and uh, just... And I and 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 it was that story, and I was kind of sort of hoping that they'd take a long time to fix the bus because I was so happy. And of course, now my phone goes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have turned that off before I began. <laughs> um, forgive me. Um, so uh, yeah, and it was just, and it was I was on that Greek island, and, and that really was the book that taught me just how incredibly transformative fiction can be. Um, and it was it was just a beautiful thing. So, absolutely, my favorite book too. That is the book that I would escape into at any time. So, what are we going to talk about this week? What book have you got lined up for us this week? So, we've got lots of big books uh, that have come out this week. I mean, the biggest one, I think, probably, and also very um, sort of pertinent in the circumstances, is the new book by Emily St. John Mandel, uh, which is called The Glass Hotel. Um, now, readers in Columbia will maybe remember Emily's last book, which was called Station Eleven, particularly relevant now, unfortunately, because of course that entire book was this sort of set in this dystopic future where the vast majority of the world's population has been wiped out by a virus. So how apt. And um, I know that Emily is rather bemoaning the irony of it all right now because she's unable to go on tour because of everything that's happened. Uh, but this is a, this book is a, is a wonderful book. Um, I, I enjoyed it very much. Uh, it's it has a slightly different feel to Station Eleven. Um, it's it, there is it's not set in the future. It's a more modern day, more contemporary, and it's more like her earlier books. People know her for Station Eleven, but she had actually written three really rather wonderful novels before that, and this feels more like those. It's um, it's very complex in terms of the way that it's plotted. It's got wonderful characterization. The reader is always slightly wrong-footed and is never quite sure what's going on, which I love, that kind of... And there's just a, there's a wonderful sort of mysterious feel to the whole thing, which I, I, I enjoy very much. The other thing about Emily, which people, local people would be interested in, is that I mentioned those first three books. They were all actually published by Unbridled Books. Um, and the editor of Unbridled Books is based here in Columbia. He's called Greg Michelson. He's a good friend of mine. And so there is actually a local connection that Emily has with Columbia. And of course, she came for the one read and, and gave, a, gave an address a few years ago when Station Eleven was chosen. So it's been, a, you know, people have been looking forward to this book for a very long time. We actually have at Skylark signed first editions uh, here. Uh, so she signed them all. Uh, so that's, uh, that's been, and that, that's a big book for us right now. And uh, we are sending a lot of those out of the door. Tell us what it's about. I mean, what's the story of The Glass Hotel? So it's a story of uh, a woman called Vincent. And it, 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 as, as with a lot of her stories, there are intertwining stories and you sort of never quite entirely sure how they converge until, until near the end. And then suddenly you get this moment of revelation and it's very, very satisfying when that happens. So 
there's somebody, one of the characters in it has a, it's like a, a Ponzi scheme. So it, it's about the sort of financial dealings and the sort of the Ponzi schemes and cra the crash of 2008 and all of those sorts of things as well. And how immensely rich people lose all of their money. Emily's books are rather difficult uh, to sort of encapsulate in a little <laughs> way because there's always so much in them but but it's 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 a wonderful read uh, and and as I say very different from Station Eleven I think I actually preferred it a little bit more than I did Station Eleven but it's 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 terrific the the other really big book that we're selling a lot of at the moment is uh, the new Hilary Mantel book The Mirror and the Light which is I the have third it. Ah, you do. And that's the third and final book in the trilogy about um, Thomas Cromwell. And it's wonderful. And the last two books, in this is unprecedented, both won the Booker Prize. And so if this one does as well, that really would be spectacular. Um, I haven't read it, but um, I've heard wonderful things. And we are, uh, we can't keep those on the shelf either at the minute. Well, good. It was a tricky book to read. I loved Wolf Hall, but it was a book that I really, really had to persevere with. Usually I give up after 150, 200 pages. If I haven't really got into a book, I abandon mm -hmm. it at that point. And it was well past that point. I'd say it was 300 pages in before I got into the swing of her way of writing. Because she doesn't really ever tell you who's in the room with you. You're reading all of these all these lines of commentary or quotes and you think, well, who said that and who are they saying it to? It's very unclear. But then suddenly I was completely mesmerized by her way of writing and I couldn't put it down. And I raced to get the second one and I've just raced down to Skylark a couple of weeks ago to get the new one. So, yeah, I think she's fascinating. It, 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 she is fascinating. And as a writer, I remember reading Wolf Hall and just going, this is so brave because you're <laughs> yes. right. It isn't easy. And and I was reading it going, I wonder how many people she lost on this page and how many people <laughs> did she lose on this page? But, you know, I have nothing but admiration for her. But you're right. It's it's uh, and then at certain at certain point, something clicks uh, and then you go, OK, I'm I'm in here. I mean, um, another book, which is a bit like that, was Lincoln in the Bardo by mm, George Saunders. Absolutely. And everyone has a different point at which that happens. But but yes, and suddenly it's like, ah, OK, off we go. What is amazing is that idea of historical fiction. It's all based on real people, real incidents, real commentary in some cases. Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. where does fiction end? Where does fact end and fiction start? And how you weave that together, I think, is is so fascinating. And the responsibility of the author to be true yeah. to the period. Yeah, well, there's there's a great quote that that I have thought about a lot recently, but thinking about my new book that's coming out in May, which is also historical fiction and has real life people in it, and it was Eel Doctorow, and he said that um, historians will tell you what happened, uh, but a novelist will tell you what it felt like, hmm. uh, which I I I like very much, um, and that that sort of that was my sort of guiding principle when I was telling my story, in that. The facts, obviously, you, you don't want to get them wrong. It's important that, that, that you, you sort of stay within the, the, the facts as they're known. But, you know, as novelists, we do have more license to, to create and to recreate a good story. So, but it's a challenge. And, and, and what's been very interesting, speaking to other writers about it, is that everyone has different levels of comfort with what they're prepared to do and what they're not prepared to do. And so that's, that's also interesting to find out where people fall on that spectrum. Yeah, at last year's Unbound Book Festival, you had a talk by with Jocelyn Cullatine, I can't remember the other author, about exactly this. Where, where does yeah. fact and fiction end and start in historical fiction? And that, that I'd never thought about it before. So that was a great, was a great talk. 
Yeah, and that was good. And that was the, the other the other author was called Christopher Castellani, uh, and and his book um, was about. Um, it, it was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it was a, a novel about a playwright, very well known, and um, and yeah, and he and he was really struggling with 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 how much, because because there was there was a hole which wasn't documented within his life, and so, and so he sort of jumped into that hole and started making things up, but but you know he he clearly struggled a lot, a lot with it, as you know all sort of writers with with a good conscience probably. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what's happening online. What kind of events are happening around the country and at Skylark that people can get involved with at a distance? So we uh, right now, um, I mean, obviously we're closed. Uh, we are, we're still madly busy because we're, we're, we're sending books out and we're doing um, home delivery and people have been very supportive and we're very grateful for that. What we're, what, in terms of what we're doing in the shop is that we're doing um, online story time at 11 o'clock on Wednesdays which is super fun and then the and that's pretty much all we're doing but what we have done with unbound is we were obviously heartbroken when we had to cancel the festival but we are doing our best to sort of rescue <laughs> what we can of, of, of all of that work uh, and so we're beginning to put together a series which we're calling housebound unbound Love it. Um, and we're, we're going to be doing <clears throat> excuse me we're going to be doing some zoom we're basically going to do the whole thing but remotely so the first one that we're going to do is going to be at seven o'clock on april 23rd which is a thursday and amber sparks and alexander weinstein who are both wonderful wonderful short story writers and they both write speculative fiction it's fiction set just ever so slightly in the future where you know maybe your your smartphone is a little smarter than it is now and little things like that so it's it's obviously it's clearly recognizable but still they're, they're wonderful and they ask very interesting questions about where we're going uh, and how we might get there and what it's going to look like when we get there and so they're going to be in conversation uh with um where it'll be moderated it'll be just really just like the the actual thing and so yeah we'll be we'll be doing that and so we're we're, we're looking at putting more and more of those up as we go and then throughout the sort of literary world there are lots and lots of authors who have had their book tours cancelled i know a few people have actually had the publication date pushed back uh, to a point in the future and and um, two friends of mine, both of whom actually have come to Unbound in the past, Caroline Levitt and Jenna Blum, have actually put together a thing called A Mighty Blaze, which is an online presence, which is really a way that authors can talk about their books and do virtual talks and virtual book tours, and anybody can go and see them. And they're there at Facebook if you search for A Mighty Blaze. There are, um, I think that there are, there are videos of authors talking about their books and they're, they're looking at doing more things and actually Unbound is going to work with a mighty blaze to get some of what we're doing to a larger audience as well. Um, but, you know, authors are smart people and they're creative people and they always find ways around problems, no matter how apparently insurmountable they may be. Uh, and so there are all sorts of things going on and it, it's kind of inspiring Obviously, we'd all rather see each other face to face. Um, but in the absence of that, it's been very interesting to watch people do these these different things and bookshops, too. I mean, uh, you know, we're all struggling under the same sorts of pressures, of course. And it's been very interesting to see how everyone is sort of addressing the, the, the various challenges that we have right now. And we're all pulling together. I mean, one thing that uh, a remark that has been made to me many, many times is that books ought to be classified as essential services. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which which I, I obviously <laughs> I agree with for a number of reasons. 
but you know they're, they're not at the moment but but there is actually we are we are working on that but we can um, order books from you and you will either deliver them to us at the curbside or you do home deliveries too so we don't have to be cut off from books during no, this period we, we we mail and we're doing very reduced mailing rates at the minute we'll basically we'll mail a payback to you for a dollar Wow. Uh, and then we're actually not allowed to do curbside pickup at the moment under the terms of the new oh. order. I mean, we may be, but we're being very cautious. And I'm actually waiting to hear back from the city to be told exactly what we can and can't okay. do. But we know, that we know that we can mail and we know that we can do home delivery. So that's what we're doing at the moment. Okay. Well, wonderful, Alex. Thank you so much for checking in with us. We'll be back of next course. week to talk about more books that are out and uh, what else is happening online. Thank you so much. Thanks, Diana. And now we turn to the dramatically inclined Monica Palmer, <laughs> development, <laughs> development director for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Monica, here we are again. So, Hello. <laughs> so you and Trent Rash, the Missouri yeah. Symphony Orchestra's executive director, came up with the idea of Mosey Mixers, a kind of cocktail hour with musical insight benefits. And the idea behind it is just fabulous. How do we connect with composers <laughs> who have become legends, but who seem remote and fusty to us, even though they were far from it? They were racy and raunchy and wonderful and weird, just as we are today. So each week on our chat, Either you or Trent are going to take us behind the history of certain composers and music and add some colour to what sometimes can seem like a black and white past. So mm. who are we going to explore this week, Monica? <laughs> well, that was the perfect introduction and I'm going <laughs> to um, ask you to write it down for me because I want to say it just like you did British accent and all uh, at the beginning of all of our Mosey mixers. So <laughs> today, um, I, I, it's a perfect setup because he was uh, raunchy. What, would, what did you say? Raunchy and racy and raunchy. Racy, raunchy, wonderful, wild. He was all those things. Uh, it's uh, Joseph Ravel. Joseph, sorry. <laughs> it, nobody uses the Joseph name because, the, you know, that was his dad's name. But it's Joseph Maurice Ravel, a French composer. A lot of people know Ravel because of Bolero. This is like the big famous work that everybody knows, which Ravel probably is spinning over in his grave every time somebody's like, oh, yeah. Valero, because if he knew that that was going to be the piece that everybody remembered him by, he would not be very happy. <laughs> so um, he was he was born in 1875. He died in 1937. Um, he's he's often associated with the Impressionist movement, although he resisted that association himself. He was like, no, no, that's it. But I think he was kind of aligned with Groucho Marx in that you know he wouldn't want to belong to any club that would accept him as a member. So just trying to categorize Ravel in any way, shape, or form was was not something he wanted. He was he was in his own category. He marched to his own drummer. Um, he was he grew up. His dad was an inventor, Joseph Ravel, who he, he you know he had some great ideas, but he didn't really get marketing. I think marketing was his main problem. He had some really cool ideas like the loop the loop roller coaster called the whirlwind of death. Sounds amazing, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, Wasn't I don't a bad accident though. <laughs> well, there were a few. So, you know, it never really caught on because, you know, there were some fatalities associated with the coaster. So, you know, a, a little marketing problem, but uh, <laughs> it could have also been a location problem. So the Ravels moved to Paris when Maurice was a child and at age 14, Pretty cool thing happened. Maurice joined the Paris Conservatoire, which uh, was, was a big deal. But 
As you might imagine, just knowing what I've told you thus far about Maurice, he struggled a little bit with formal education and you know, the whole, uh, you know, go and write your fugue, go and, you know, do your canons. You know, this was not something that really sat well with Maurice Ravel because he was an experimenter. You know, his dad was an inventor. He had this kind of inventive spirit about him and he wanted to do his own thing. So he he tried and failed to do the Paris Conservatory's pre de Rome competition. Big deal, huge deal. On one occasion, he was kicked out in the very first round, and the reason was terrible errors in writing. And Maurice Ravel, he would criticize himself. I think he, there was a there was an anecdote that I read once that he would write um, a, a book on you know, composition and use his own works as what not to do. So this is the kind of person <laughs> Ravel was. He very self deprecating. He understood that he had struggles, but. Unlike his inventor father, uh, Maurice understood marketing and he understood the importance of getting the public's attention. And on the fifth time that he attempted this competition, the, the Prix de Rome, he was about 30 years old and he was starting to make a real splash on the French art scene. And he was once again eliminated, first round out. <laughs> and uh, But this time he had fans and he had fancy artsy friends and they blew up in a rage. They were outraged and they made a big fuss. And so much so the French press picked up the story and they lobbied for the resignation of the conservatory's director. Ooh, those so, are powerful friends. <laughs> right, they were. And, and consequently, the director was booted out. So um, I, I don't think Ravel ever won that award. He, he was he was uh, presented with the Legion Honor. I forget what it was called, but he was presented with some really illustrious honor at one point. But then he was like, no, no, thanks. You know, because most of the people who have received this award, they did really horrible things to get that award. So I don't want it. So, you know, again, it was just that, I, you know, I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. So, you know, I don't know why he was really trying for this award, because it really probably wasn't that important to him. But but it really launched him into being this, you know, he was the guy. He was the music guy on the French scene in the 20s. And, and that was his thing. So, so how did he become the French art world's darling? That's, that's the question that, you know, we all want to know because we all want to be the French art world's darling. But I'd say we'll be Columbia's was... arts world's darling, really. <laughs> well, you are. Yes, absolutely <laughs> your title. You and, and Maurice, you guys, you guys have a lot in common. Uh, for example, Maurice Ravel was a very impressive figure, but not in the way you might imagine. He was, he was really small, just about five feet tall, just over five feet tall. But every single one of those five feet was always decked out in the snappiest suits and exotic ties. He was a true dandy, super fancy. He would always He would have done sure. great at Eurovision. Yes. The Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> would have loved Maurice Ravel. Absolutely. And and his group of friends, they were the Apaches. That's what they were known as, a bunch of artists and intellectuals of the day. And some some biographers say that Ravel, like many of this social circle, was gay. But the evidence, one way or another, is, is all anecdotal, circumstantial. He never married. And he did have a habit of putting on tights, a tutu, and falsies, and dancing around on tiptoes to entertain his friends. But then a lot of his friends were artists specifically ballet dancers and choreographers and he was european so there's a great and it was area. the roaring 20s i mean it was know. the roaring 20s who knows and who cares <laughs> he he definitely marched to his own drummer in life and in his music as well he developed this 
kind of Ravel style as of his own, you know, it kind of had elements of modernism and Baroque and neoclassicism. In his later works, he, he actually came to United States. He met Gershwin. He went to jazz clubs. And, and so a lot of his later works actually have a little bit of jazz influence as well. My favorite part of that whole story of when he came to America was when he went to a jazz club and he, he was astonished by the cigarettes on the table that were labeled grass. He thought those were pretty interesting and exciting. So. <laughs> but uh, so um, Bolero is the piece of music I uh, sent you to, to share with your listeners today. Just a little snippet of it. Everybody probably knows it because it was made famous in the film 10 with Bo Derek and uh, what's the guy's name? Oh, gosh. Dustin. You know who? Dustin. Dustin. No, no, no. It's <laughs> I'm completely blanking. It'll come to me. <laughs> but uh, so Bolero, it's one movement. It's an orchestral piece originally composed as a ballet commissioned by uh, a Russian actress and dancer named Ida Rubinstein. That's not entirely accurate, though, because Ida, she said to Ravel, she wanted an orchestral transcription of these six piano pieces, Iberia, and, and she wanted that transcription. So Ravel started working on that, and then he found out that the Spanish composer Enrique Fernandez Arbos had already transcribed those piano pieces, and he had copyright on them. And Damn. so Ravel was like, oh, darn. But then the Spanish composer was like, no, no, go ahead. I want to see what you can do. And so in true Ravel style, he was like, nah, I'll do my own thing. Thanks. <laughs> and so Bolero happened. And Bolero, actually, it's it's kind of interesting. So, um, so Ravel was on vacation, and he went over to the piano, and he started playing a melody with one of his fingers. And he said to his friend, don't you think that theme has just like an insistent quality. I think I'm going to try and repeat it a number of times without any development and just gradually increase the orchestra as best I can. So that was the birth of Bolero. And that's what he did. If you look at the form, the waveform of Bolero, it's just a, a steady crescendo, kind of the opposite of what most people's investment portfolios have looked like <laughs> the last week. So it's just like rise, rise, rise. It's in C major, three-quarter time. It begins in pianissimo, very, very quiet, and rises to fortissimo as loud as possible. And it's built over this unchanging, unrelenting, insistent rhythm played on snare drums. And it remains constant throughout the piece. And on top of that are two melodies. They're each 18 bars in duration, and they're each played twice alternately. And the only variation is the orchestration. It's passed, the melodies passed around to different instruments and uh, different instruments join into it, but it's just kind of getting louder and fuller. So why don't we listen to it? Why don't we listen to a snippet? So this is the Missouri Symphony Orchestra playing Ravel's Bolero from 2018 Hot Summer Nights.
And that was a little snippet of Bolero played by the Missouri Symphony Orchestra a couple of years ago. Before we close, Monica, what else can we, what else do we need to know about Bolero? Well, it was his most lucrative work, which again would probably drive him crazy up until uh, 20, I forget when this this calculation was made, but it made like $57 million for the, uh, the Ravel estate, which wasn't really anybody that was related to or connected to Ravel, which, you know, that kind of stinks. But yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, it was, it's also a testament to the subjective quality of art, which Ravel kind of loved this concept. He used to buy like things from street vendors and put them up in his house and say that they were Renoirs and Italian masters. And then when people were like, oh, oh, it's so amazing. Then he'd laugh at them and say he bought it on the street. So <laughs> I think he probably had that same kind of fun with Bolero because this piece is an example of something very simple that when when consumed and adored by the masses has become this this amazing thing. And of course, we have to give credit to the films because it was in two films which popularized it as well and one of them is 10 which we talked about Dudley Moore is the Thank name you, of the actor I couldn't think of um, and Bo Derek in this saucy scene uh, she says of the piece Uncle Fred said that Bolero was the most descriptive sex music ever written and he proved it so with a titillating line like that we'll no leave it Bolero. there <laughs> <laughs> no wonder Bolero is still a part of our music tapestry here. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Monica Palmer, development yes. director and uh, and regaler of saucy tales from the past <laughs> for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. We'll come back next week and check in with you, or maybe with Trent next week. And, yeah, um, Trent and next week, yeah. explore another piece of classical music. I'll see you soon. Bye, Monica. Bye. The next act of today's show is brought to you by the Artistic Director of Talking Course Productions and Master of the Lightsaber, Adam Bretsky, and the Mistress of the Stable Boys Improv Troupe, the wildly imaginative Kathleen Johnson. Now, we have all suddenly been thrust into a world of minute-by-minute -minute improvisation. Are you navigating this situation better than the rest of us because of your improv training? Does yes and help in the time of coronavirus? <laughs> Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, this is this is something that I don't think I I had any prediction for when we were planning the talking horse season for 2020. You know, we were looking forward to all these uh, revolutionary things that we were planning, and now we're forcing ourselves to be revolutionary in other ways. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think to your question, the the basic principles of improv being able to look at a crisis and instead of throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, I don't know what to do with this. Instead, we can say, okay, world, yes. And we're going to do this instead. Yeah. I, you know? Oh, go ahead. I totally, I was going to say, I totally agree. I think in moments like this, the mindset is what's most helpful for me. You know, we talk a lot in improv about how, what you just said, Adam, that yes and isn't necessarily always agreeing in the way we understand yes like I agree this is great yes happiness uh it's sort of okay this is the world you've created I'm gonna live within these bounds and see what I can do within this world how can I make it and so the world has thrown us this strange scenario this uncomfortable scenario and we have to figure out 
we have to live in it. We have to figure out what to do, how to move forward. So I'm excited for all of the arts things that I'm seeing, that the arts really are being super creative across all the genres, whether it's, you know, books, film, everybody's doing things that are way out of the box that we didn't think would ever have to do, you know, two weeks ago. And suddenly there's this whole new world of sofa side arts happening that we can all do while we make our own popcorn and sit on our own sofa. So that's great, as long as we don't get too comfortable, because <laughs> at the end of this, we want everybody to come out again and carry on as they were before. Right. <laughs> so while yeah. we're all sitting at home, tell us what, Im- what the world of improv offers to us. What, are you, what have you got for us today, Adam? Yeah, so one of my favorite improv games, and this is something that I think is a lot of fun to play with whoever you are currently quarantined with, is <laughs> a game I like to call Reverse Interview. And so that is basically a game where you, you start uh, the conversation at the end end of the interview. So for instance, if I'm interviewing Kathleen, I might say, well, thank Kathleen, thanks so much for coming today. Uh, We learned a lot about what you had to share. And wow, I never would have guessed you overcame losing both of your legs. And And then Kathleen would respond. You know, when I was standing there face to face with that tiger was the moment I realized this doesn't have to be a bad thing. And I let him eat both of my legs and my life has never been the same in the best way possible. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's incredible. Now you were face to face, Kathleen, with a tiger. Can you tell me what was running through your head at that moment? (laughs) Oh, Adam, you are too kind to compliment me with that greatest compliment that you just gave me. Um, but really, honestly, I I am not the only one to have ever macromade my own prosthetic legs. Um, uh, there are actually many different Pinterest boards that show you the uh, opportunities that could be involved when you start thinking uh, less with your toes and more with your fingertips. Wow. Well, I want to get back to your fascinating story in just a second. But first, I've got to tell you, the the prosthetics that you have designed here, I mean, just the interlacing of everything that you have together, they're just, they're absolutely breathtaking and stunning. And I just, ah, I just need to take a moment and just appreciate those. understand that you had an issue with a teacher in the past that um you had an experience that uh that you wanted to tell people about today oh my gosh adam thank you so much for having me on your show i gotta tell you i'm feeling a little emotional these days um as i think a lot of us are uh but i feel like my story can really inspire people in a um in a time like this Well, Kathleen, thank you so, so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you to someone who's inspired us all, her breathtaking book, 
uh, how I learned to macrame while missing all 10 of my piggies. Uh, it's taken the world by storm, and today we're going to learn a little bit more about that story. Uh, Kathleen, thanks for being here today. Ba -da -ba 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 -da! It's the Adam Show. Adam Show. <laughs> Adam interviews people on the Adam Show. Ba -ba -da -ba -da. Well, that's that's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. So, Is Diana, it... if you're ever looking for a new format for the show. <laughs> <laughs> that was gonna. That was gonna bending my mind trying to work out. Go backwards in time. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. If you're stuck Mine at home too. with a dog, it might be a little more difficult. You know, but. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. I have to tell you, that's the first time I've done uh, a game like that, actually done it. Adam told me that it was one of his favorites, and I was like, yeah, let's try it. And it's hard to do. It requires a little bit of thinking. Yeah, it's great, because I just made it up. So it could have been a disaster. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, so that's a pretty tough one. Supposing you're stuck at home just with, you know, like your eight-year-old. What's, yes. what's an improv game that's good with kids? Okay, one of my favorite improv games with kids, because I think it is um, a pretty easy concept to understand, and you can kind of take it wherever you want, is called Fortunately Unfortunately. And it's basically a storytelling game, which kids love to do in general. Um, and it deals with positives and negatives, which I think, especially at a time like this, being able to see positives and negatives and let your imagination run wild is super fun. So it's called Fortunately, Unfortunately, and you go back and forth. You can do it with just one other person, or you can do it with as many people as you want. You just each take a turn. So maybe, Diana, if you want to do this one with us. Um yeah, we just, we're going to tell a story and each part of the story. So you give about a sentence or so of the story and it begins with alternating either fortunately or unfortunately. So fortunately, it was sunny outside. Unfortunately, I'm really susceptible to sunburn. Fortunately, you also happen to possess SPF 150. Unfortunately, when you tried to open the bottle, it squirted out all over the ground. Fortunately, I don't mind just wriggling all over the ground and covering myself in sun cream, spilt sun cream. Unfortunately, before you could do it, your dog got to the spill first and started to lap it up. Fortunately, your dog regurgitated the sunscreen onto your lap and you were able to use that to properly cover your exposed skin. Unfortunately, I am highly allergic to dog saliva. Fortunately, dog saliva has been uh, found to remove all body hair. Unfortunately, your husband loved your hairy legs fortunately i have hairy arms too so i was still able to hug him with my hairy arms unfortunately he's a little smarter than you give him credit for and he knew it was your arms fortunately he had never before noticed how muscular your arms actually are and he gave you a nice little compliment unfortunately it was really a small compliment because with us living in the time of coronavirus, I haven't been to the gym for weeks and they're beginning to wither away. Uh, fortunately, withering away has done great work for your entire shape. You're just looking very... Mm. <laughs> 
unfortunately, those clothes aren't really fitting the way that they used to. There's one t-shirt that you have that is just hanging in all the wrong places. Fortunately, I'm a radio presenter and nobody can see. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned what's a great game to play with kids. I tell you, kids are the best improvisers. Uh, They don't even need the context of a game. You just say, hey, let's play. And you just watch their imagination run wild. All improv actors can learn a lot from playing with kids. Also, if you um, are not the most excited about doing improv yourself or you're a little scared about tiptoeing in, but you want to watch it or listen to it, there are some really great places that you can take in improvisation now that you are stuck in your home. One of my favorites, obviously you can see old episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway through different streaming and on YouTube. Adam, do you have any that you like especially yeah one of my my favorite improv things to find on youtube is called comedy sports which is just a collection of uh, a lot of times short form and long form games similar to the fundraiser that we had done before but it's a great way to see a whole mix of different improv activities to get uh get your creative juices flowing. If, uh, since you're listening to this right now, if listening to things is more your jam and you're really into podcasts, which I really love because I kind of keep them on as background for adults. Like if you're listening, I think ones that are really fun are um, Improv for Humans. It's by Matt Besser who leads Mm. it. And he is kind of one of the premier long form comedians and he has different people that come on his podcast and they just do long form in conversation. So they do improv scenes like verbally that you can hear and if you have kids there's a wonderful group that I did some work with briefly when I was in college uh, called Story Pirates and if you listen to them they take it's a little different but they take stories that were written by kids and all of the wonderful things that are given to us from the writing of children. And they use those and extrapolate from it and partially improvise, partially write out longer plays based on those stories and kind of bring all those characters to life. Well, those are perfect. Something for adults, something for children, some great improv games to try at home. And um, next week we'll check in again and talk about some other form of theatre that uh, we can <laughs> we can all enjoy. Adam Bretsky, Kathleen Johnson, thank you so much and we'll be seeing you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. For the final act of this week's show, we are checking in with the visual arts and taking us on this next arts journey is Hannah Reeves, the gallery director for Sega Browdis Gallery. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. So looking at art online is never as powerful as standing a foot in front of it in a gallery. But viewing work digitally does really open up a much greater narrative possibility. What are your thoughts on digital art viewing? I've been thinking a lot about this, as you can probably imagine. And, you know, I think that when you're looking at um, images of artwork, typically on like our gallery website, those are cropped to the edge of, you know, a two-dimensional painting. Um, And that's really to give you a full sense of the painting without kind of any extra like noise, you know, visual noise from a room. Um, But... What that does is I think it makes your experience on the screen, especially two dimensional. I mean, it's already a two dimensional piece, but um, 
so something I've been thinking about is including imagery and videos that show even a, like a sliver of the floor or a little bit of the space around the painting, a little bit of staging. Um, we did have time to get into the gallery with the Cuban work and um, stage some of it and take a variety of photographs and videos um, so that when we're sharing it, I hope that people can actually get a pretty three-dimensional sense of it, even though they're still looking at a screen. That's been kind of the main focus. Right. I was spending some time on the Rieks Museum's gallery, and I love that you can zoom in on each of the works, and there's a little narrative that goes with each part of the works, things that you just wouldn't see if you were standing in a gallery, things that you wouldn't notice as a casual viewer, but suddenly you get this kind of rich history, this rich narrative that goes with the work. So it seems like there is a great opportunity to learn more about visual arts during this distance time. Yeah, and you know, through our social media, we have opportunities to combine words or audio with the visuals, you know, in our Instagram stories as we lead up to the exhibit. Um, and then in a variety of kind of slideshow setup videos, I think that's exactly what we're looking to do. So you are on the cusp of your Cuban contemporary exhibit, which we maybe probably will be looking at online rather than in person. So tell us a little yes. bit about what's going to be in that exhibit. So this is the second time that we've held a Cuban contemporary exhibit because we kind of specialize in contemporary Cuban work. And so the last one was two years ago. This show is completely new work. And so that's one thing that I want people to understand is that while they've seen the show title Cuban Contemporary Exhibit at Sacred Broadus Gallery before, um, this exhibit is entirely new. It's actually debuting in the United States. None of this work has been seen or hung here before. So there are two artists who are kind of returning to our rosters, whose names people will recognize maybe um, Andy Yanis Buto, who is our artist in residence and whose work we also showed two years ago, uh, brings an entirely new series that he actually made here in residence in Colombia while he was here from Havana. And um, Michael Sotomayor, who's a young artist, painter, um, who does very adapted and um, abstracted landscapes. His work nearly sold out almost immediately the last time that, that we showed a body of his work and we have all new work of his. So we're really excited for people to see that. I think that's going to be much anticipated. Um, there are three other artists as well. So, you know, like our monthly exhibits, there are five artists featured. And from each one, we really have a pretty full body of work. Um, the difference this time is that it, it takes almost a year, it took almost a year to physically bring this work, acquire it and bring it from Cuba. That's not an easy process. So it's been a long time in the making. Are there limitations to what you can bring, take out of Cuba or have things sent out of Cuba? Yes. The, you know, the main constraint actually this time was that we could not go. I'm that we went in 2017 in advance of the 2018 exhibit and we were able to go and meet the artist and physically choose the works. And the main difference this time was that we couldn't go. Um, and so Happily for us, we work with a couple of really wonderful gallerists and curators in Havana, whom we already knew well from our past experience and worked very closely with them, um, especially Elisa Lopez, to, uh, to then select and bring the work. So you sent me images of two works, one by Frank Valdez, which I'm going to put up onto our Facebook page so people can see it. So starting with that one, talk us through, give me the, the narrative component of that artwork. Well, that piece, like many of 
the works by Frank Valdez has kind of a reference to pop art. He's a really young artist. Um, he is just over 30 and he is a professor of art and so really has been uh, creating work and painting for a while, but he's kind of of this like emerging generation of Cuban artists, like most of the artists in this exhibit. And so he's definitely drawing on pop art that incorporates found some found imagery. And so you'll see in that piece, there are some like visages that he's created that seem to refer to maybe like old prints or photographs of statuary or um, something from kind of like vintage imagery. And he just like appropriates and pulls those sources in in a pop art manner. But the most noticeable thing about his work across the board is this super saturated, vibrant color. And that's something that is going to be kind of unique in this exhibit. His body of work is just immensely colorful, vibrant, it's definitely surreal. He's creating scenes that are sort of visual collages of um, elements of portraiture and landscape and animals and swaths of color and just straight up mark making um, that is just really, really energetic and vibrant. Yeah, I noticed that he was definitely the most colorful of the artists that you have in the current exhibit. <laughs> the other piece of work that you sent me is by Michael Sotomayor, which is very, very pared down color wise. Tell us about that work. So Michael Sotomayor um, grew up in the countryside outside of Havana. He now lives and works in Havana. And he he really thinks about landscape in kind of a, a unique and interesting way. He builds landscapes kind of in his mind. He is he calls himself sort of a filter. Um, he's, you know, taking things that he remembers and that he's seen from a variety of places. And he actually thinks that it's really important that he's pulling elements from these different scenes and he's like subduing the color palette. And so in the ones in the image that you have, one becomes mostly green and grayscale, one becomes mostly blue. Um, in the works that people will have seen a couple of years ago of his, they're entirely like blue scale landscapes. And so that is it, that's a, an element of filtering that he's doing. He's showing you that these things are selections from within his memory and adaptations from within his mind, which is particularly important to this artist. Okay, well, let's check back in again next week and look at some of the other works that are in the show. By then, the show will be, I think, technically open, at least online, <laughs> and uh, we can chat more about some of the other works. Thank you so much, Hannah Reeves. Thank you. And that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to all the people out there who are working to keep us connected through the arts. And to those who are working on the front lines as we tackle this new normal, thank you for keeping us safe and healthy. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished until the next time we're all able to crowd into a theatre lobby. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.